In the name of God the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is the fourth Sunday after Easter. It's the name for the fourth Sunday after Easter is Good Shepherd Sunday. We always have a reading from St. John's Gospel about Jesus, the Good Shepherd. As St. Peter says in the um, standard version, the Savior and Bishop of our souls. This figure of Jesus as the Good Shepherd is one of the most beloved figures uh, in all of the scripture and one of the most beloved figures of Jesus in the history of the Christian church. The earliest visual representation that we have of the Savior is from the catacombs of Rome. And it shows uh, Jesus, the young, a young Jesus, with the lamb around his shoulders. Jesus, the Good Shepherd. Um, it's a very important figure, it's a very powerful figure. Uh, we're, we're used to it. Of course, it is a figure of great tenderness and compassion and love. The, the shepherd cares for the flock. In fact, Jesus says, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Um, we have to be a little bit careful that we're not carried away with sentimentality. You know what sentimentality is? Sentimentality is a, well, a tearjerker of a movie. That's, a, that's, a, that's sentimentality. That's, that's something, well, it, you know, you kind of go, ooh, uh, but it doesn't really go down to the bottom of your heart. Uh, you, you, something is sentimental, something is cute, um, strikes you for a moment, then you move on. But this figure of Jesus, the Good Shepherd, if we really understand it, it uh, it's full of great tenderness and compassion and love, but it's fearsome at the same time. And it would go to the bottom of our heart and it would not leave us the same. And we would want to give up everything in order to follow this one who calls us each by name. The figure of the Good Shepherd is, is very powerful to me because when I was first ordained, um, I served a, a country mission, little rural church, um, and uh, they didn't have any money, and so we had to earn our own living, and we did a number of things, but one of the things that we did is we had 200 sheep. And uh, so th this, this image has a kind of a vividness for me. The first thing to say about it is uh, it has nothing to do with Bo Peep, you know, and it has nothing to do with Mary's lamb. Um, the business of raising sheep is to be involved at a visceral level with the realities of life and death. What does it mean to be a good shepherd? You know, we can ponder what it means in the Bible, but just if you had sheep, what would it mean to be a good shepherd? What makes the difference between being a good shepherd and a bad shepherd? Well, in the ancient world, as well as in the present day, it's a very simple thing. A good shepherd, is a shepherd who can keep lambs alive, and a bad shepherd who is someone who can't keep lambs alive. Uh, a good shepherd keeps the sheep from dying, and uh, a bad shepherd is not able to do that. Um, there's, a, there's, a, there's a thing uh, in animal husbandry called lambing percentage. It's the number of live lambs per you, right? I, I don't know whether they used that term in the ancient world, but they clearly understood it. The measure of a good shepherd is the number of live lambs, and the measure of a bad shepherd is dead lambs. Now, 
it's also important that we understand that the figure of the good shepherd is not just a, a metaphor or a parable from animal husbandry, it's a political image as well. God, through his servant Moses, is in a life and death struggle for God's flock, the people of Israel, with the bad shepherd of Egypt, Pharaoh. Some of you can remember when the remains of uh, the, the artifacts of the tomb of Tutankhamun were going around the country and they had the, the, the golden uh, sarcophagus, the mask of Tutankhamun, and his arms are crossed. He's got a fly swatter in one hand and he's got a stylized shepherd's crook in the other hand. In the ancient world, the king is the shepherd. Now, you know, when I was in seminary, my New Testament professor had a wonderful lecture about the um, bucolic Palestinian shepherds and about how tenderhearted they were and how they had a name for each one of their sheep and they weren't like the greedy American farmers that are only in it for the almighty buck and, um, you know, have no interest in their, in, their, um, in their flock other than a mercenary interest. It was a wonderful lecture and a wonderful story in every way. It just makes no sense in both the terms of the ancient world or in terms of the contemporary world. So Jacob, right, he labors all those years for his wife with his crooked father-in-law, and finally he assembles his flock and he decides to go home and it takes a day for his flock to cross the horizon. He didn't know each one of his sheep by name. And I guarantee you that Pharaoh did not know the name of each one of his citizens. And the best king of Israel that there ever was, King David, the shepherd king, who was taken from among the flock. He did not know each one of his sheep by name. One of the huge innovations in animal husbandry is the invention of the ear tag. It's the first time that you can uh, reliably identify individuals. We had 200 sheep. There wasn't any way that we could know 200 sheep. We wouldn't even try to give them names. They had ear tags. They had numbers. Um, a couple of them that were always troublesome had names. Um, uh, Limp and Lena, I remember, who always used to get out and get her nose through the fence. Do you think that Father Abraham, who would delight to see the hills white with his flocks, knew each one of his sheep by name? This is an astonishing thing that's being said, that the king knows each one of his sheep by name. The king does. And of course, in the ancient world, the sheep, the members of the flock, they made up the army and the army went out and fought on behalf of the, of the king, of the shepherd king, and uh, they gave their lives for the king. What kind of a shepherd is this that lays down his life for the sheep? Uh, this is, uh, well, the Bible, the word is the good shepherd, beautiful maybe is a better, uh, beautiful, amazing. Uh, th this is an amazing a shepherd who knows each one of his sheep by name and lays down his life for the sheep. Now, another thing that is helpful to understand about the kind of shepherding that they did, it's not uh, fixed farming. It's nomadic. You're, you start here and you want to go there. 
and you have to get the flock safely from here to there. You start out in a sheepfold here where you're keeping the sheep safe from the predators and the bandits and the wolves, and then you lead them out, and then you have to protect them and guide them and get them safely to the final destination where they're being folded again. When we were farming, um, and we, you know, we kept our sheep in a barn, we didn't have to take them to the, to the mountains in the, in, the, uh, in the summertime and to the lowlands in the wintertime like they have to do out in New Mexico. We just had 100 acres or so, or so of pasture and we kept them right there and they came in the barns at night. But even so, every morning I went out and with great anxiety, I, count, I, I went out and I, the first thing I did was I went out and I looked at the pasture to see if I saw any sheep with their feet sticking up in the air. And if I saw that, I knew they would be dead. And uh, sheep with their feet sticking up in the air is the first symptom of something called overeating disease. Sheep have a bacteria in, the gut, in, their, in their gut. And uh, that bacteria is you know, kind of part of the plan. But if they, if they don't get a steady diet, if they eat too much one day and not enough the next day, and they don't have any sense about that. So if they're nutrition sawtooths, you know, and that can happen just even on a farm. Then what happens is the uh, bacteria gallop. They explode. And they produce a nerve toxin. And the nerve toxin is absolutely fatal. And the first symptom of this disease, which is caused overeating disease, is uh, dead sheep. Now imagine if you have to take the sheep, let's say, 500 miles. And every day, you have to plan that so that the plane of nutrition is steady uh, and that they get to the water at the right time. In the psalm, it says, you know, he maketh me to lie down in green pastures. Sheep that are lying down are chewing their cud. Everything has gone just exactly the way that it's supposed to do. No bandits, no wolves, no bears. You know, the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. This is an, this is an incredible thing. I, uh, as somebody who used to have sheep, I used to listen to this story that Jesus would tell about leaving the 99 to go in search of the one. What he's, you know, he says, well, who would not do that? Well, almost nobody, that's nuts. You know, while you're off looking for the one, the 99 are getting eaten by the coyotes. Um, it's all upside down. It's all different. It's all contrary, profoundly contrary to expectation. And it's all at tremendous cost. Um, he maketh me to lie down in green pastures. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. So this life goes somewhere. It's not just a dead end. It passes through the valley of shadow of death. And then we come to the words of the scripture today. I'm the gate. I'm the door. If there's a door, right, there's something on the other side of the door. And this is the great question. It's the question of the moment. Is there something on the other side of the door? And if there is, who can usher us across that threshold safely? I am the door, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. Contemporary people don't like this in some way. It, it sounds exclusive to us. 
this claim for a unique salvation in Jesus Christ. Surely there are many ways to the truth. Well, let's get that out of the way. Of course there are many ways to the truth. And, and all truth is God's truth and Christian people will embrace truth wherever it is found. If it's found in science, if it's found in some other religion or some other philosophy, if it's truth, we will embrace it. But what Jesus is talking about is not a competition of ideas. He's talking about sheep who get lost, who don't know the difference between food and poison, who are beset by enemies, who walk through the valley of the shadow of death, and who need saving, guiding, and bringing through. At the end of the book of Numbers, Moses has led the people by God's grace safely through the desert. They're on the verge of the promised land. And Moses prays, O oh Lord, send, send, send a savior. Send a man after your own heart. Save your man to lead and guide the people, lest they be like sheep without a shepherd. And now, He's come, and the prayer is answered, and the crucified and risen one, he reaches out to us with the wounds of his love on his hands and his side. He breathes his peace into us, and he calls each one of us by name and bids us follow him that we might come home at last. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.